0: Hello and thank you for joining Haaretz Weekly, with you in studio Amir Tibon. Later on today's episode, a fascinating discussion with historian Adam Raz about his explosive Haaretz article from last weekend about massacres in the 1948 war and what Israel's early leadership knew about. But before that, we're going to a different subject. A new government was just sworn in in Germany, while here in Israel, the post-Netanyahu government this week is celebrating half a year in power. How will the two new leaderships get along is the subject of our first segment. With us in studio, Professor Gisela Dax of the Hebrew University, an expert on German politics, Israeli-German relations, and a longtime journalist based here in Israel. You've written for newspapers in Germany about all the dramas of Israel in the last day. Uh, two decades or so. Thank you very much for joining us. And Konstantin Nowotny, who is an editor at the German newspaper Der Freitag and is doing a fellowship now in Israel with the IJP, which is a fellow for German journalists in Israel. And we are lucky to have him with us at Haaretz for the next two weeks, I think, before you go back. Yeah. Thank you for joining as well, Konstantin. Thank you. Gisela, first question to you. Before we dive into the new government in Germany and how it will get along with the current government in Israel, In a few sentences, and I know this is a big demand, but in a few sentences, how do you sum up Merkel's legacy?
1: Yeah, I would say 16 years of stability and, well, with a woman at the helmet, which was not a a usual thing for Germany, and I think after these 16 years, many people had criticism with her, and still liked her very much, and started to miss her from the moment on when she said that I, I will I will go away. So I think she left Germany with a kind of a double bind. On the one hand, people want continuity, but they also want change. And in fact, the person who now succeeds her, Olaf Scholz, the the new chancellor, I think was the closest. <laughs> To what, what to Merkel that was there, not
0: ideologically, but you, you're saying in his characteristics, in his personality.
1: I would say both. he's even starting to do the same gestures, like her. he was vice uh, chancellor before, finance minister in her cabinet, uh, governing together with her authorities from a different party. So I think he he kind of tries to be this continuity, reassuring people on the one hand, but as he's from a different party and he has different slogans, more progress to to dare more progress. So also trying to say we have to open a different area.
0: Mm-hmm. And and specifically, when we look at Merkel and Israel, that in itself is a, a big story.
1: Well, that is something we can talk about it then at length, because so far, also there as a whole, one can say continuity probably will be the main point. Also, I can imagine that behind the scenes, more criticism might be voiced uh, and different stance. But Definitely not with those people now on top in this government.
0: So we'll go a little bit more into that. Constantine. I want to ask you about a story you published for us at Haaretz about two weeks ago about the new foreign minister and where she comes from on Israel. Tell the listeners a little bit about the. I
2: think the first woman foreign minister as well in yes, Germany, the right? First and the youngest, I guess. Annalena Baerbock is uh, the first woman foreign minister in Germany, and so far, all we can say about her relations to Israel are somehow dependent on what she said. Like, there's no real policy that she has already engaged, but she made it clear that she continued the stability that uh, Angela Merkel also advocated for Israel. And um, But there are some things that um, are quite interesting. So she was talking about an arms deal with Israel in 2018. And there was this discussion because she was asked by the interviewer if she supports arms deals to areas of crisis, including Israel. And she said, well, we have to think about it, right? We don't know what uh, the Israeli government is doing with uh, submarines. And she later regretted saying that. And now she's, I think, pretty much following the line of Angela Merkel, too, with um Yeah, strong relations to Israel, solidarity to Israel and, of course, also supporting military trade deals.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, Gisela, when you say there could be more criticism, for now maybe not publicly, But behind the scenes, where do you see it coming from? From the Green Party, from the Social Democrats? What is different in this constellation?
1: I would see this would come more from within the Green Party and from within the Social Democratic Party, especially the younger uh, left part of these parties. But these are not the people who are in charge right now. So you could still say that those in charge is is Habeck, the super minister from the Green Party, Annalena Baerbock, as we just mentioned her, and Olaf Scholz himself, who have a clear stance and one has to mention here, in the coalition agreement, they in fact took in the famous word of the Staatsraison. You know, the the raison d'etat, the reason of state that Merkel pronounced for the first time in 2008, which has become since then a milestone in German-Israeli relations, saying that the security of Israel, in fact, is in the national interest of Germany. And this word has entered uh, uh, also the coalition agreement. So it is written there. Uh, So far, as somebody told me in the Israeli foreign minister yesterday, we are waiting for the first time that someone will also pronounce it or that the foreign minister (laughs) will say the word. But in, in that sense, I think it's kind of obvious. No one will now publicly start to deny and saying well, we'll, we'll embark on a new thing.
0: Do you agree with the characterization that we've had in the Israeli media all these years that Merkel supports Israel but was not a friend? of Benjamin Netanyahu. Oh, as I Prime think Minister. this
1: is uh, clearly so. Yeah, I mean we we know that there had been a few telephone calls that were uh, much less than nice between the two of them and I think Merkel had managed something really incredible with Israel in a way that she was able to somehow get into the hearts of many Israelis which is really unusual. And at the same moment, she was able to state the usual things that every European says, no expansion of settlements and no one-sided steps and Mm -hmm. so so on.
0: And we've even heard, I think in recent years about this veto, supposedly, that she had placed on a specific action that Netanyahu wanted to take to demolish a Bedouin village outside of Jerusalem, Han Achmar. And uh, whenever it was discussed why it's not happening, you would hear, not officially, but you would hear the, the talk from sources in Israel that it's because Merkel placed a veto on it
1: Uh, that could very well be yeah what is clear that she did not trust benjamin netanyahu and i think she also even said that uh, at a certain point so
0: constantine what has been the coverage in germany of this new government now in israel without netanyahu led by naftali bennett yair lapid here in israel we call it the change government
2: well, um, as far as I know, the media reports on it quite chaotic, to be honest, because we have trouble making sense of it with all the different parties uh, participating. Eight different parties in yes. the same coalition.
0: You, in Germany, how many are in the new coalition right now?
2: Three. Uh, much easier than eight in Israel. Yeah, but still pretty, pretty many parties for Germany. <laughs> <laughs> so... When the media reports on the new government, it almost every time reports on what Naftali Bennett says, not really what the other parties are conflicted with. He's the man in front. I guess so. I, I think, I could could one say it like this?
1: Uh, I think something really strange happened there. When the new government came in place, there were lots of reports about it and in the aftermath. Oh, the end of an era. Absolutely. But since then… You know, probably also because the pandemic again had another wave or two more waves, but the interest went down. And I think this might be also explained with something. Also, Merkel, when she visited Israel in September, she made it very clear beforehand, saying, I won't go into political issues at all. Let's give this new government a chance. chance." And we do know that there's only so much that this government will be able to do politically because... Because of the eight different parties and so so uh, on. So I think there is this understanding in Germany now, let, let, let's let us make them work and, and have it for later, maybe big changes or important changes. At, at, so, at so the for example, Bush.
0: when there were announcements by this new government of building in settlements, building in East Jerusalem, it didn't create a big fuss in Germany.
1: I think if Benjamin Netanyahu would still be there, uh, the fuss would have been bigger. I mm. think there is this idea to, to give a, a chance to, to, to something different, broader. And uh, as you just mentioned, these three parties in Germany, it is really unusual. It was a... Kind of a funny situation when I, I moderated a debate here about the outcome of the elections, and somebody affiliated to the Liberal Party in Germany asked a Knesset member of Yesh Atit to say, maybe you have some advice how to negotiate with a coalition <laughs> partner navigate, who is very like, different from from your your own party.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, I think this is a maybe the advice could come the other way around. How you how you have uh, three parties in a coalition as a rare event, and not eight. Uh, a question I, I would I would love for both of you to 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 address and Gisela, maybe you can go first when you look at this new government in Germany and now not just on Israel but as German citizens journalists, what do you think is the biggest challenge it is facing? What are people expecting to see that should be different now?
1: Probably it's really internal challenges always. What was really striking during the election campaign that this was really No foreign politics at all. It was really only domestic politics. You might say this is usual, but I think this has been exceptionally. By the way, the only party who had some kind of foreign policy written down was the Green Party, Mm -hmm. which is also interesting. That's why
0: they took the foreign ministry. Absolutely. So
1: here, uh, you could say, I think one of the challenges are definitely, I think, relations with Russia. Also, the question with Ukraine, placing Germany within the European uh, Union, making it clear that if, I mean, people are very much afraid that uh, uh, Russia might attack Ukraine and how to react relations with China. I think that's, and this here, Annalena Baerbock, she is value-based, saying we have to introduce more human rights. The question is how much will this be watered down mm-hmm. now in the government? And the main question is always where foreign policy is really made, whether it's made in the office of the chancellor or in the office of the foreign ministry. Oh,
0: that sounds like a very Israeli debate, I have to say. Here in Israel, we've had right, for many years this uh, tension between the foreign minister and the prime minister's office. Konstantin, what's your take? Biggest challenge for the new government?
2: I think the biggest challenge might be also to reconciliate all the internal contradictions that they have. They had a pretty intense election campaign. I mean, intense for German standards, but... um,
0: Not like in Israel when uh, one party supposedly used private investigators to dig dirt on the other and breaking into phones, but but (laughs) intense for Germany. Yeah,
2: quite intense. And there were some internal debates. Like These parties are not normally quite the biggest friends, especially the liberals and the social democrats and the Greens. The Greens and the Social Democrats, might they somehow made it clear that they can get along with but Specialty Deliberates, they have some different perspectives on market economy and how internal affairs work in Germany. And I'm I'm excited to see how this works together. Or maybe there will be good
0: stories to write about. Gisela, a question that has to do with, I think also affected Israel at times, but it's a broader one. Merkel established herself in the last few years in office really, I think, as a candidate, not just to be the chancellor, but as the leader of the free world in the Trump years. There was a time when there was a crisis of leadership because of what was going on in Washington, and she emerged as the responsible adult that many people in the world were looking to. Uh, is the new counselor up to the task? Even though right now things are a bit different, there is no Donald Trump in Washington, but, uh, I, you know, we just heard this weekend he has not said the last word.
1: Well, one of the newspapers made a very funny drawing about Olaf Scholz presenting him as a smurf. And you could say he's not very charismatic but has experience. I mean, he used to be also the mayor of Hamburg. Uh, He was a finance minister. And I think what he did is a comeback of the social democratic parties. So if you talk in terms of pendulums, we already thought a few years ago that this might be only go the pendulum towards the right. We were
0: reading everywhere that social democracy is is over, over, not just in Germany. And
1: he, in fact, uh, had a campaign really centered on uh, social justice, respect of every citizen, somehow it worked. Uh, And I think uh, you're right. I mean, this has to be reconciled with the pro-business liberal party. And I think one of the biggest challenge that has really uh, taken off, I would say in in all over Europe is the climate change uh, challenge. Yes, And I think that is really something that bothers the young generations in Germany and elsewhere, and also in Israel. I mean, young people get really Worried about what will be if if actions are not being taken.
0: Indeed, both of you mentioned that there are younger people in this coalition that could have a more critical approach toward Israel. Considering who are these people and uh, how powerful do you think they will be over time?
2: Oh, that's a tough question. Because I don't I don't quite know if they really can make an influence on this new kind of government. The Social Democrats and the Green Party both have youth organizations that are, I think, a little more critical against the Israeli government. But this doesn't really play any role in the new government because they can voice their opinion and they can be critical, but it doesn't always translate into policy. And the high-ranking party officials are all on the same side when it comes to Israel because of this, what you mentioned, raison d'etat.
0: I think Merkel said it at the Knesset at the time that for Germany support for Israel is a fundamental issue.
2: Yes, yes, I agree.
1: Mm-hmm. Maybe I can can add something here uh, when Olaf Scholz became the the candidate of the Social Democrats. I mean, he was put there because no one thought that he had a chance. Hmm. Uh, The party expected uh, him to fail. Exactly. And because he's coming really from the conservative branch of the social Democrats. And then once he got a bit better in the polls and people said, oh my God, they will give him a hard time. Uh, the basis won't won't let him do how he feels it would be very difficult for him to handle his own party
0: a bit like Uh, Biden and progressives in the US (laughs) Right. and
1: right now what is happening I think that they are all so happy (laughs) that they are back to power that they are celebrating him and from what I feel I mean unless this could change in the future there is not much criticism also not when it comes to the coalition agreement I think they are just happy that they got something new together and are really behind him
2: it's a, a bit of a honeymoon phase really right now it is, yeah. you have to consider the um the party base votes for the coalition agreement they actively agree to it and they agree to it with i don't know 70 80 percent even more yeah, yeah yeah so there's strong support they're really happy that they're back in power again after 16 years interesting if you had a meeting tomorrow morning with naftali bennett or yair
0: lapid and you had to give them one piece of advice of how to work with this new government in germany what would it be
1: I think I think what what people would like to know is we know that the situation right now is not an ideal one when it comes to conflict resolution or conflict management. Uh, we also do know that it's not all only on the Israeli side, the responsibility for it while things are so stuck. It also has to do with the other side. But I think people would like to understand whether Bennett would agree to a two-state solution, whether this is still doable or not. And if he's against it, what kind of vision would he want to, to see that could be supported or that could convince people around that. I think that is something that people who are not so much into the details would like would like to know and to understand.
0: We at Haaretz would like to know it as well, I'll be honest. Konstantin, <laughs> something that you think Israeli leadership needs to know about the young generation in Germany today? Maybe some of our perceptions, we see Germany through the, the Merkel
2: generation, things that maybe are different? That's really a tough question because the young generation in Germany is, I think, very plural. You can't really nail it down to one thing. But... Um, As in any other country, I think the young generation is a little more progressive, so you can always uh, argue with uh, human rights. You can always uh, argue pro-civil engagement and all these kinds of things, and this is an appeal you can make, but don't expect everyone to follow you if you do it.
0: Friends, thank you very much. Professor Gisela Dux from the Hebrew University and Konstantin Nowotny, our fellow here at Haaretz. Thank you both for this fascinating discussion on the new government in Germany, and we'll continue to cover it on haaretz.com. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And after the break, a conversation with historian Adam Raz about his fascinating Haaretz article about massacres in the 1948 war and the Israeli government's internal deliberations on the subject. Hello, Adam Raz, historian and frequent Haaretz contributor, and the author of a fascinating article from this weekend, which we published on Haaretz.com under the title, Classified Documents Reveal Massacres of Palestinians in '48 and What Israeli Leaders Knew. Hi. Great to have you with us, Adam. Thank you. This story has been creating a lot of conversation in the last 48 uh, hours, and it really starts with documents that you found as uh, part of your research that show that in real time, in Israel's War of Independence 1948, the leadership was aware of atrocities committed by our military forces.
3: We need to say first that as a historian, I need documents. And uh, in Israel, it's very, very difficult to get to the, the Holy Grail documents of, uh, of uh, forty-eight because of the censorship, because of the Israeli policy of uh, declassification And uh, so on. And what happened uh, two weeks ago that after 73 years, a series of uh, protocol of uh, government meeting that were redacted 73 years ago, okay, declassified.
0: After 73 years, somebody, I want to ask you in a second who that person is, decides now we can release these protocols Uh, of the government uh, meetings. Well, it took time. And it probably involved a fight. Sort of
3: fight in 94, 95, a big part of the, of this protocol of forty eight forty nine was open to the public. And there was a
0: lot of reduction in the, it's, which means the documents were released, but with erasures that yeah, basically black, you, it was, it's. Uh, black marks all over the page. I, I think there is this mythological story that when uh, our another a friend of ours, Avnir Cohen, released his uh, first book on the Israeli nuclear project, he got back the entire book, redacted, except for the page numbers. In 94, 95, a big part of this 48,
3: 49 protocol uh, was declassified with a lot of reduction. And uh, a year ago, me and my friend in the Akevot Institute, we well, which it's an institute that deals right with the public memory. With and public history. memory with the the triangle of memory, conflict, and archives. Okay, mm-hmm. and we say that if you want to know uh, your history, if you want to know the tool, you need the you need the archives for it. you. That's need documents. where you, that's where you start. Yes, we ask the archives, the state archives, to to check again after it was 95. four ninety five. It's
0: been almost three decades since then. Yes. Let's
3: check check it again because this is you need to understand that the, this protocol of the of the, the meeting of the government is, is the main core of the of the protocol of, of if you want to understand politics, okay, and especially of forty eight. So it took times, uh, but at the end they opened part of the uh, documents and then I found a free uh, meeting, okay. Uh, the subject of free meeting was a series of massacres that took place in. Two operations at the end of the war. One operation was in the north, this is Mifsahiram, yeah. and one operation with Yo'av, it was in the south, through the Negev. So it, it was two operations that a series of massacre took place in them. We know today, it's after 73 years and after historian uh, wrote a little bit about this. Benny Morris at the time, Benny started Morris a discussion and about... Tom Segev and Adelmanai, mm-hmm. important people who do a great job. Based on the document they, that they have back then when they walk in the archives. So we have a picture of what happened, and we know about a series of
0: massacres that took place in these two uh, operations. Yeah, w- when we talk about the Nakba, this is, I think, today much more recognized as part of the story than it was, let's say, 20 or 30 years ago, that these massacres
3: happened. Time passed. If you want to talk about the Nakba 40 years ago, the people who did this Nakba, okay, we're alive. Yes. So, so after seventy-three years, I think it's it's a little bit easier for us. Okay, mm-hmm. and then we are in the, our 13th,
0: 14th. And I have to say, when I read your article, I found the details of the massacres themselves shocking and extremely disturbing to read. And at the same time, what I found even more, let's say, interesting was the political element, the I... debate within the government that r- shows that the leadership in real time gets reports on these massacres and is trying to decide what to do about it.
3: Yes. I think it's, this is the, the most important part in my article. It's, it's not the detail of the massacre. This is horrible
0: to read it. Okay. Uh, but, uh, it's important it, by itself, but, but yes. there, you're saying there is a different level of importance to understanding what from, the from leadership po- is.
3: For my point, as a political historian, yes, or if, yes. Well, at, at the end of the war, the leadership of, the, the Israeli government sit for four meeting to talk about massacre. And the these are place. long. These
0: are long meetings, hours long.
3: Hours long. The protocol are, are pages and pages. Okay, this is not a five minute talk. Okay, mm-hmm. and they're talking about the massacre and about the the meaning of of this massacre. Not to not not to ourselves as a Jew, as a nation. What is happening to us? Something that uh, when you read the protocol, you can feel it. Okay. They're sitting, they're not trying to hide the fact. They want to use it as a tool to educate
0: the people, okay, the the Jewish people. And it's a young country back then. I mean, most of the people are, you know, new arrivals to the country. But is there a. A real, uh, let's say, uh, debate about this. I mean, take take our listeners, those who haven't read the article, okay. and I strongly recommend to read there it. Is a, there is a but debate. W- what are both? Like, who are the two sides in this debate, and what are they saying? Okay, on one side, it's it's two side and it's uneven
3: side. On one side, we have actually all of the minister who are thinking we need to to check what happened and we need to to prevent them from coming back. Okay, this is all of the ministers. On the other side, there is David Ben Gurion, is the prime minister, who are against a committee that uh, he doesn't want to look into it. Nothing. Okay, no. and this is a very important, not from a only moral perspective. Okay, so in '48, in uh, November, December,
0: this is the moment that the military court system is like established. Mm-hmm. Okay. No, well, you didn't really have a military before, right? So now military needs to have a court. And uh, from puts, okay. from May, you yeah. have you you have the IDF. Okay, mm-hmm.
3: it's the moment uh, for that Agana is transforming into, to, yeah. to to the Israeli Defense Force. And when you read all the documents, when you read the protocols, so you you get sense that there was a lot of people involved in these massacres. But in uh, this operation, Chiram and Yuab,
0: Only one soldier was put to court. Only one of all the different events that you describe, and there are others, only one person stands trial. Yes. Only one person, Shmuel, lies. Who, who is this person? he,
3: he was uh, he was an officer, and he, he, in two series of massacre, he killed in the first eighteen people, and in the second sixteen. There, they he, were he himself. He himself. The first one was uh, he put uh, the people in a uh, in a house and bombed it, and in the second a day after he shot them with his stand Is like where uh, where in the country was this? It was in Hula for. Six months, the Israeli conquered uh, 14 village in Lebanon. It's on the border. Yeah. So it took them. It's, uh, it's the, the two massacre uh, happened there uh, day after day. And he was the only soldier that uh, was put to court in Hiram and Yoav operation on the charge uh, of murder. And what happened to him in that uh, court trial? At the first, uh, he got seven years, and then he, in the appeal he got one year, and, he, and at the end he was parole then he was nominated 30 years after it to the director of the Jewish agency and this is a man that we have a lot of information okay about what he did in 48 so the, it's it's uh, it's very interesting because you need to ask yourself what what does this mean not only for the Jewish society the israeli society about uh, about how she think, yeah, what the, our values, our identity, but as the from f- from political point of view, what it's mean, and I think that there is a reason why the state and the censorship and a few well, well the, the military apparatus is mm-hmm. is trying and is working to conceal document. Why? Because you know in Israeli we have this this, you know, this sentence, The, terrible, most, the moral most moral army, army in the in world. The world. Yeah. Now, it's very easy to be the most moral army in the world when you don't have the documents that present another story, another history, and when you don't put soldier in court, okay? So this is amazing. You can read the protocol of the, of the meeting of the government. It's 100 pages, okay? You read it about what happened how it happened, and so on. And you have documents from other archives, and you have a good picture of massacre of more than 200 people. And you know the names, sometimes, you know the name of the people who do it. And only Shmuel Lais was sentenced to one year in open base. It, was, it's not, it wasn't It's wasn't even a jail, It's basically. not a jail, yeah. It's, and when he got uh, this appeal 30 years after it, he was a lawyer, and he had a very, very big and interesting career. But at the end he finds himself as the director of the Jewish agency, meaning that not only the political sphere arena, but the, the Israeli public don't give a damn okay, about war crime that were committed by soldier in forty-eight and not only in 48, if we are going almost 70 years after 48, about the the, the, the famous Elor Azaria. Elor Azaria affair. A- Azariah, yeah, affair. Why it was such a big debate in the Israeli society? After all, we know he, he was a soldier and he killed Palestinian that was uh, neutralized on the ground. On, underground, yeah. Underground, yeah. Okay. Because there is this DNA in the Israeli society or the Israeli public something discourse, something like this, that we are not putting soldiers who kill Palestinian during operation, we are not putting them
0: to court. And with the Laura it was also, I think, a sense of like he he was described as people's brother or son. And is this something you also saw in 48? This idea that the, the people that like Shmuelais or others that could have been put to trial but we're not, these are our brothers, our sons, and why would we do this? First of all, there is the code of silence,
3: okay? And you can read it in the protocol of the government, okay, that they are telling to other ministers. I got a letter from a, a member of my party who heard something. And or, they're
0: shocked and they are... Uh... And
3: no, and it's very difficult, Ben Gurion saying it's very difficult to get to the truth. Mm-hmm. Why it's so difficult? Because people don't want to talk. So this is a very important thing, okay? Because at the end, the Israeli society as a whole, hug the soldier who committed this crime. And I don't think that, uh, you know, the IDF, the Israeli army, is uh, more or less moral than other army. But Israeli is been in conflict from the moment of its inception in '48, And when you are in a war, so people or soldiers are doing war crime. This is part of the war. The crime. There
0: is no war without war crimes yes. by definition.
3: So you can talk about gluten and you can talk about raping of women and you can talk about demolition of houses and you can talk about a range of war crimes. But you need to put this to court. People need to investigate this crime. And there is this in 48. We can find this DNA of not trying to silence it. Yeah, but it's it's. I think it's more than trying to silence it in public sphere. You are not talking about it. Mm-hmm. You are not putting it, you are not investigated it. And even if you investigated it and you have documents about it, you are not, journalist or historian can go to archives and find these documents. So this is why this declassification of, of this specific protocol are very, very important because they are telling us that the political echelon know exactly what happened during these two operations. It's not a byproduct of the war that nobody knows about it,
0: but it's part of the war. What was Ben Gurion's reasoning to take, you're saying a different approach than the other ministers and to basically shut it down?
3: So in in February 49, there was general pardon for all the crimes, except murders, mm-hmm. that was made during the war. So it's a major thing, okay? that all the crimes that have been made by Jew- by Jewish soldiers or citizenship soldier during the war are deleted. Ben Gurion was not only the prime minister, but also the defense minister. So Ben Gurion thought we can control it. It's not that Ben Gurion thought that we need to kill Palestinians. But he is, thought if this happens on the margins, it's something that, that is part of the war. And at the end, this is the margin okay so it's not uh it's not the bone tone of it's not a comment that in every place there is a massacre there is a lot of violence it's a war yes but it's not massacres so he thought that i think that if we are going to put now hundred of soldier hundred on trial on trial how it's affect
0: the uh, morale of the army
3: I Think the motivation of yes, the army, yes, okay. Because if you have if you think that what you are doing, and people knew that what they are doing, it's, it's not only difficult, it's it raises moral questions, yes. They knew it, okay, yeah. Aspe- and I think especially the Jewish people in 48 five years after you know the Holocaust and so on, mm-hmm. so they knew that what they are doing when they looted stole property, when they shot somebody, they knew that there is a moral question that uh, is put to test here. And this is, I think Ben Guron thought that if he will uh, put this moral question at the center of the IDF, it will hurt the motivation of the soldier to
0: expel people. When you compare the debate on this issue in Israel to other places in the world where there have been massacres and the mass expelling of population are we early to start discussing it late somewhere in the middle where do you put us on the timeline i think the
3: israeli uh, society is responding actually quite fast
0: okay it's true it's 73 years but uh, Uh, as a journalist it sounds to me like eternity but as a historian maybe you have a different perspective
3: (laughs) when you look at uh, other example in history, uh, taking, for example, the slavery period in, yeah. the, in the United States, or uh, what happened in uh, the Indian in the West,
0: mm-hmm.
3: uh, Aboriginals,
0: uh, Aboriginals in,
3: Australia. in Australia, and so on. When you compare the discussion in the United States, now in America, about black and about the attitude of the white people in America today to uh, the period of slavery, and it was hundreds of years ago. Okay, uh, you can see that the, the dynamic of the discourse in Israel, I think, is uh, is going quite fast. And I, I, I know I don't know if it's good or bad, but the, I think today, after seventy three years, well, you know, our family fought in the war, but yeah, m- my two grandfather who fought there are, are not alive anymore. So I think it's it's more easy for us now to talk about it. It's Seventy-three years—it's you know—it's—it's it's life. Yes. Okay. So now, when you say Nakba, people are—I think—are m- more willing to talk about it. Are more willing to listen. Forty years ago, if you talk with people from Mapam and the, from Mapam the Israeli very left, very—the uh, very left, not communist, but very Zionist left—you couldn't say the word Nakba. Mm-hmm. Okay because we are the most moral army in the world and so on. So if you, co- if you compare the discourse in Israel to that uh, taking place today in university in America,
0: I think we are, we are in a good place. Interesting observation. One question that a person can raise after reading your article, it's, it's not a question really, it's an argument, is to come and say this is terrible, this is horrible, and it's important to investigate it, it's important to pull out the documents, and, and, and the history needs to be known. But at the same time, you know, it's 48. It was a war for uh, life and death, maybe different than all the other Israeli wars that I mm. think you and I agree had an element of uh, wars of choice in them. Uh, this one, it was really, you know, for the whole ball game. And um, this is part of it. What do you answer to that argument? which I'll be honest with you I, I personally have a bit of it in me as well you know I look at it cuz and maybe it's it's a bias I have because my uh, family was here in 48 fought in the war and uh, yeah, a, 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 and this raises important questions for us I,
3: my 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 family also my my two grandfathers fought in the war and I dedicated my last book to one of them he was in the palmach mm-hmm. yes so so this is part of my history well, first of all, there is two reasons why I'm, I'm, I'm writing about these topics. First of all, I'm, this is the story of my people, yes. okay? As a Jewish, as an Israeli, uh, this is the story of my family and your family. This is, and 48 and, and is a special moment in our history. And I think that people need to know what the government, what the state did in their name. So this is one and second we need to remember that for me this is the war of independence okay this yes. is not the nakba and this is is not it's not 48 this is the war of independence i'm in in every year i'm going with my children you know with flags and this is not the uh, the nakba for me in, in this day okay but for my palestinian friend in israel it well, is this is this is the nakba and the listener need to know that after the war, the one hundred and fifty thousand uh, people,
0: Palestinian, stay in Israel, And became Israeli citizens, and become Israeli. And then citizens. there was the military rule for twenty years, yes. which you've also written a lot about. And
3: this is their story also, and yes. they are citizens, and they have the right for truth. They have the right to know what their state, what their country, and this is today, this is their country, did to their family. So. I think that if we want and this is this is and I'm talking not as Adam the historian but as Adam who has political motivation, okay. If we want to to bring the two people who live who share this land, okay, if we want to go
0: ahead this terrible situation, we are solve this conflict that's really at the center we, of our lives for many so many years. Yes. So we need we need
3: to talk about our uh, past, and this is a, a good beginning because you need to talk about the military rule or the military government that were been here in Israel for, for from forty eight to sixty six. And you need to talk about this is a major event that divided uh, the uh, people who live in Israel, Palestinian and Jew. And you see, like, I wrote this article and I got a lot of response. From the left, from the right, okay. Because people knew knew that this is this is something that it's very difficult for the Jew to talk about, and I think this is the reason.
0: Well, it's difficult, but at the same time, I think really interesting. Thank uh, you to to learn about it and important to have this discussion, uh, even you know from different perspectives. I think no matter how you see it, let's say in the political historical issue, I think it's important to know. Adam Ras, thank you very much for joining us for the discussion today thank you for having me and that's it for today's episode thank you very much to our producer Aaron Ehrlich and to you listeners for joining us we'll be back here again on Friday with another episode of Haaretz Weekend until our next meeting Shalom from Tel Aviv